He's the curly head mate who's ready to go Nobody knows snow like reggae no snow He's ready to blow like an atomic reactor This is the show where we call it Chill Factor Talk on the pow, are you ready right now? There's icons galore and they're ready to chow We got more power than a snowflower tractor Dropping the clutch, yeah, this is Chill Factor Hi, I'm Reggae Ellis and welcome to the Chill Factor Podcast. Well, it's late October, that time of year when skiers and snowboarders in the Southern Hemisphere start thinking about trips to colder, snowier places north of the equator. And the good news is Australia's borders are reopening next week and if you're fully vaccinated, you'll be able to travel without having to quarantine when you return home. There's also been some early snow in Canada... Japan in the US, California Sierra is copping a big fall early this week with up to metre of snow around the Taha Resorts in Mammoth and Mammoth is set to open early on October 29. Now there's also been some snow in Whistler which is now the home resort for this episode's guest, Australian free skier Anna Siegel. Anna's from Melbourne, grew up skiing Mount Buller with her sister Natalie and she trained as a racer before competing in moguls. Then Anna switched to Slapstyle where she had a lot of success including two world championships, winning the inaugural women's comp at the X Games and just missing out on the podium at the Winter Olympics in Sochi in 2014. Since then, Anna's pursued a free skiing career, focusing on the backcountry and film projects, and she made that great feature film with her sister Natalie, Finding the Line. Now, that road led Anna to British Columbia, and she now lives in Pemberton, skis Whistler and the Coast Mountains, searching out big mountain lines and powder. Now, for the last couple of seasons, Anna's been filming with uh, Blank Collective Productions and features in the recent release Tales from Cascadia, which just won Best Feature at the IFV International Free Ski Festival. Anyway, a lot to talk about, so let's drop in. Anna Siegel, welcome to the Chill Factor podcast. Thanks for having me, Reggae. Well, we're on either sides of the world in different hemispheres. Um, I'm here in Threadbow and um, you're at home. In Pemberton, British Columbia. Yep. Uh, in Pemberton, it's nighttime, pretty dark out, and the weather's cooling off, so getting quite excited about skiing again. I bet you are. So, um, you know, you've relocated to Canada. Uh, you know, home is now Pemberton. Um, how did you end up there and how long have you been there? I ended up in Pemberton uh, from Whistler, and I ended up in Whistler from Australia, like so many other um, Aussie expats over here, but I, going back seven years now, I decided that I wanted to move to the Pacific North Northwest, mainly because I wanted to start getting into backcountry skiing and ski touring, and yep. I was a little bit scared about the Rockies snowpack after taking my first avalanche course, and yep. I heard that the snowpack was more solidified out here. Um, may or may not be true, <laughs> but being naive back then, I thought it would be a good place to check out. Um, I also knew that the annual snowfall here was a lot higher than, say, in Colorado or Utah, and yeah. I had a couple of friends out here that had told me how amazing it was. You know, there's a great park, um, great snow, big mountains. So I relocated to Whistler in at the end of 2014, yeah. and I did the next well, five years back and forth back and forth to Australia a little bit, but for the most part lived in Whistler. And when I finally decided that I wanted to buy a house here, uh, Whistler, yeah, or buy something, I was sick of having landlords. 
um, and was sort of out of my price range. And I had a lot of friends that lived in Pemberton, which is just 25 minutes down the road. And I started looking around Pemberton and found my dream spot. And I moved out here and haven't looked back. Yeah, no, I mean, like you said, it's a big move into continental change from uh, Australia to um, Canada. You know, I know um, your sister Natalie's done the same thing. She's currently living in Revelstoke. Um, so, yeah, you and Nat sort of been uh, fairly adventurous in your skiing, different paths. Now, you talked about 2014, uh, moving over there, of course. Now, 2014, that was after you competed at the Sochi Olympics. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe it was the end of 2015. I, I lied. It was the end of 2015 because 2014 I was already having a knee injury and an ACL surgery. Um, That's right. But, yeah, I think I, I decided a couple months before the Olympics that that was going to be my last event. Yeah. Um, I was skiing in a lot of pain. The fire had kind of gone out of my belly. I'd been competing internationally for almost 15 years and I still was passionate about skiing, but um, I was just I was done with competing. And so I tapped out after the Olympics and, yeah, I, I still wasn't finished with skiing though and I was looking for, for more adventure and more challenges and so... I think uh, Whistler and Canada have definitely provided me with that. Yeah. Well, um, it's backtracking, you know, of course. Well, you grew up um, from Melbourne, grew up skiing Mount Buller, um, Team Buller Riders. You're a mogul skier originally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been an everything skier. I've been... <laughs> uh, <laughs> except for ski ballet. That's the one the one type of skiing that regretfully I haven't um, given a shot at. But, well, you just missed out. That had finished about 10 years before. I yeah, think. I mean, yeah, if I was born the generation before, I'm sure I would have tried that as well. But yeah. I actually initially was a racer until I was about 14 or tried to okay. be a racer. And then when I was 14, I switched over to mogul skiing. And I also did a lot of cross-country skiing on the side, which I still love to do. I uh, love the chook footing. Um, <laughs> but, That's yeah, Mobile skiing to slope style skiing, slope style skiing to backcountry skiing. So yeah, well, I, I mean, and, and the slope style skiing is where you sort of focused on internationally, of course. Um, you know, two world championships. You know, you, yeah, world champion twice. You won the inaugural uh, X Games, women's X Games in Aspen, mm-hmm. and like as we said earlier, progressed through to the um, Olympics in 2014. So that period of international competition, like slope style was just gaining its feet. Um, and you were part of that, but it's fairly torrid time for you. I know you had a couple of, what, back-to-back knee injuries? Uh, I've never had back-to-back injury knee injuries, actually. I think, I feel like if I'd had back-to-back, I, I might have thrown the towel in because that's pretty mentally and physically taxing. But yeah. it was always kind of like, to me, it was almost like, a good year, a bad year, a good year, a bad year. And so that good year just kept me coming back for more, you know, because the good years were so good. You know, you're traveling around with your friends, you're learning new tricks, you're hitting these huge jumps, you're building your confidence, you know, going to all these amazing countries and and doing what you love. And those good years, when the bad years came along and there was a season-ending injury, you just, like, couldn't give up on that thought that another good year would come. And so I think... Yeah, having those good years in between all my injuries was what kept me going. Um, yeah. So luckily, no back-to-back. But, but the knee was the major one. Yeah, I kept knees. I've blown. I've had four ACL surgeries, and yeah. <laughs> uh, not quite back-to-back, but four. Not back-to-back. I mean, I've, I've had. A, and my first ACL surgery was actually in the moguls. 
when yeah, I was right. the Australian development team. So I can't attribute all of them to slopestyle skiing. No, but since slopestyle, you haven't had any major injuries. Well. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> I, I actually blew, the last time I blew my knee, I wasn't competing anymore. I'd fully moved on to skiing backcountry, but I was doing um, the marketing for one of the summer glacier camps up on Whistle Blackcomb. Yeah. Um, ski camp. Yep. And I was up there and I, you know, I'd do all the marketing work and I'd organize the photo shoots and the, the sponsorship and all that kind of stuff. But then I'd get to ski. So I would ski park. And I was hitting, I was hitting their big jump. Um, and a bunch of the Canadian team girls, all like 10 years younger than me, were, you know, doing switch fives and switch sevens. And I'm like, I'm going to do a switch five on this jump. Like, I haven't done one of those for years. And I, I came into this big, like, 60-foot jump switch and just, I mean, I must have just, like, the speed radar had gone out of my head. Um, yeah. I wasn't as good as judging speed as I used to be and I just knuckled the jump by, like, three feet and uh, it's my ACL. <laughs> well, there you go. So, yeah. Um, yeah, well, now I know why you stay out of parks. Knuckle <laughs> jumps, kids. It's bad for your health. So when you're growing up at Buller, like um, are you up there like every weekend, the classic sort of weekend school holidays and just, you know, bell to bell skiing? Yeah, classic weekend warrior. Um, Mum would pack us all in the car on a Friday night after working a full week and drive us up three and a half to four hours, probably four hours after all the pee breaks, um, up the mountain and, you know, unloaded, unpacked all the groceries had the two days skiing and then jumped back in the car and ventured home every weekend in the winter and the spring. So yeah. props to my mom because she's, yeah, she's a superwoman. But we did that and we did school holidays and it just, um, I think probably not living at the mountain makes you love it even more because it's something that you really, really look forward to. And, and when you are there for the weekend, like you said, bell to bell, you're out at eight and you're, you're home when the lift closes and after that you're out in the snow building igloos because you're just so obsessed with the snow. <laughs> as, as your skiing developed and things like that, well, I mentioned Team Buller Riders before. Like who did you, can you remember who you skied with? Anyone that, you know, was there a pack of you crew around the same age just, you know, skiing, having a good time? Yeah, so for Buller Riders it would have been, I remember it was uh, Zoe Jabor who is yeah. now... I don't know if she's still doing it, but for the last at least 10 years, she's been an, an Olympic. Um, I think she's still judging, yeah. Yeah, an Olympic moguls and aerial judge. Um, yeah. So Zoe was part of the Rat Pack. I'm trying to think. Uh, Pete McNeil was a bit yeah. older than me, but he's now one of the Australian mogul team coaches. He was, he was part of the Rat Pack. Uh, Liam Wallace, who I don't know if he's involved in skiing anymore, but he was part of the Rat Pack. Watkin McLennan, um, I'm forgetting, yeah, I'm trying to think who else. Um, Watkin, I'm trying to think who else is still in this. Uh, Joey Cochran came on a little later. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that was kind of like, and the Rat Pack like changed and morphed, but that was sort of originally who I skied with a lot. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, that developed. And when did you decide, I know you're at university and things like that, um, slope style sort of became an international thing for you. When did you think, okay, I'm going to follow this. I want to be a full-time skier. I'm going to do it competitively. When was that decision made? 
Um, I think when I was mogul skiing and I kind of um, made my way into the Australian development team, you really are in the like elite athlete mindset at that point. And so everything that you're doing is you think going towards your efforts for the, for, for the Olympics. Um, and so I think it was around 16, 17, I placed, I got a few podiums on the Europa Cup and that's when I thought, okay, um, I want to make the World Cup team. I want to make the Olympic team. And yeah. then after I, I hurt my knee the first time, my first ACL injury, I kind of had a bit of time to distance myself from the sport and decided that what I really wanted to do was to be going to X Games and, you know, doing yeah. extreme skiing type of thing. So um, I ventured overseas and I still had that mindset that I wanted to give it a try, but I didn't know if I was actually going to make it, but I'd already given up mobile skiing. And then when I entered my first really large contest, which was was the US Open, um, at the time it was sort of like, it wasn't X Games, but it was the the biggest contest with the biggest field and it allowed the rookies to compete against the pros. So it gave people sort of a chance to get a leg up. And I entered that contest not thinking, it was just sort of like a try, a test for me, test event, and then I ended up winning it. And yeah. so I think from that point onwards, I decided that I, I had a chance and I, I, I could potentially make something of it. Yeah. Well, I remember like it, there was a few, I remember meeting you at a, uh, an event, I think it might have been Hotham. First time I met you was free ski, the Rip Curl free ski event back then, I think. I know. Would you have been 16, 17 then, I suppose? 16. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a bit of a little healthy um, free ski scene in Australia that time with a number of number of events and then we saw things like the one hit wonder develop out of that i remember you skiing in that a few years ago and that was like a solid 80 foot 80 foot jump um and then you know the x Games sort of rolled in and winning the inaugural x game is sort of like everyone's going back here you go wow you know look there's an australian pro skier this doesn't happen very often um i think it's pretty excited from this side yeah um yeah, no, when I, when I did that first Rip Curl Open, I think it was called, at Hotham, I was still, I was still mogul skiing. Like, I was actually living in Divine and training with N-Swiss. Um, and so the whole time that I skied moguls and trained moguls, I did kind of fun little events on the side. Um, I remember yeah. being on tour in Europe, and if I heard about a big air contest being on, I'd enter it just at night. Just okay. A fun thing to do. So I did some, like, big air contests in... Um, in Falls Creek and we used to have the expression sessions at Mount Buller. So I always liked entering. I didn't think that just because I skied moguls, I couldn't do park or slope style events. Um, So I was kind of getting into it before I quit mogul skiing. But yeah, the Rip Curl Pro was like, I I remember that so clearly. I was starry eyed, there were all these international pros over there. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm skiing alongside them. But in reality, there were only four girls <laughs> in the event. So even though I won, I was definitely like big fish in little pond, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, yeah. it was cool. It was like a cool um, cool vibe. Everything was relaxed. It was really fun parties. Like, yeah, yeah. It was, my mum took me, but, you know, I felt like that was pretty cool at the time. Yeah, pretty cool, even though your mum was chaperoning around <laughs> Parties in Swindlers, where we had them, I can't really remember now. Um, and that, okay, so we've, we've gone through um, the slope style thing, and then, okay, so you've made that move after the Sochi Olympics, and now 
during this period, I know like your sister Natalie was on Freeride World Tour doing her thing. And then you guys got together and made that great film, Finding the Line, which I find really interesting. It was, you know, you, you two sort of running off each other there, trying to, you know, encourage each other to approach and get over your fears that each one had for the either discipline. I remember, you know, you trying to teach Nat how to do a backflip and you jumping off cliffs and getting over that initial, uh, you know, trepidation for, you know, backcountry skiing and big mountains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Finding Line was a huge project, um, definitely bigger than we anticipated and yeah. it started out just it was going to be like a little 15, 20-minute film that Nat and I shot in one season and made a fun little sisters edit um, and then it just snowballed into something so much bigger and to be honest in the middle of production I just wanted an escape route I wanted like a abort mission button <laughs> it was it was so much work like I can't even I can't even express how it was just physically and mentally and emotionally so taxing like there were a lot of tears um, throughout those three years but I think firstly it brought Nat and I closer together definitely um, I think it was really good for both of our skiing and um, yeah, I, I was really happy, like really happy with the result, you know. Um, I definitely think looking back at that, I'm like, oh, gosh, I was so clueless, you know. Like I've learned a lot since then. But um, it, it also like created an opportunity for Nat and I to go and do like more, I guess, in the future. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you, you know, you had Bjorn Salen sort of filming, directing with you and mm-hmm. it was like, you know, you know, and that awesome scene up in, um, you know, with Lorraine Huber up in Alaska. So it's sort of pretty well over. Was, did you film it over two Northern Hemisphere winters? Yeah, two two winters. The first winter was less filming. We were just filming in Canada. And then yeah. the, the second winter we filmed Canada, Chamonix, Alaska. And we also we also spent a solid month filming in Australia and we didn't use any of the footage which was bad, yeah. It was not because the footage was bad. Like, we had some really beautiful sunrises and sunsets and it was moody and it was everything that Australian backcountry skiing is, you know, but it just didn't fit into the storyline. And so as our executive producer um, nicely put it, she said, sometimes you just have to kill your babies. And even though (laughs) we'd spent a lot of money getting Bjarne out there and... Um, you know, we filmed up on Bogong. We filmed out, out the back of Perisher, you know. You went out to Townsend, didn't you? Townsend, yeah. We, we spent a lot of our energy doing that because, you know, you've got to lug all your camping gear out there and, and be really yeah. well all that. But, uh, yeah, none of, that, none of it got used. <laughs> Sitting on a hard drive right next to my feet, actually. Yeah, how funny is that? Mm-hmm. That's the way it goes. And, um, okay, and then, like, Speaking of films, you know, I was just watching the um, Tales from Cascadia trailer that you're, that film's coming out again now that you worked on with Blake Collective. Yeah. Now, the photos and the footage of that, that's full on, you know, big mountain, steep, open face, <laughs> fine skiing. Um, you've pretty, it's been interesting from this side to watch you evolve from, you know, essentially a mogul park skier into, I know you've been keen on the touring and backcountry for a few years, but now that, um, now you, you know, legitimately, Anna Siegel, big mountain skier. 
I mean, how did that come about? And was it? And how do you feel out in the backcountry in that big uh, stuff? It definitely wasn't overnight. <laughs> yeah, I figured that. <laughs> I've been out here chipping away for seven years now, and this will be my eighth season that I'm coming into. And uh, you know, I, I can't remember who told me, but someone someone said to me, "It's going to take you like five years to to get where you you imagine you want to be." And I'm like. Five years? I don't have five years. I'm already 28, you know? I was like, <laughs> two years. <laughs> yeah, they were right. They were totally right. It's like, it's just the first year was just even trying to find partners to ski with because no one, it's hard to find someone that's going to take a rookie out, you know? Um, you're a bit of a liability when you don't really understand the snowpack really well and um, you don't really know how to dig a friend out and you, and you don't have any experience. And so, I actually spent the first year in Whistler skiing a lot of park and just like wishing that I was up higher. But yeah, it's evolved. It's been through meeting people, making connections. Um, a big part of it was buying a sled um, because a lot of that, a lot of that terrain that we filmed is sled access. Um, BC is notorious for it, and um, it's really hard to film a ski part without the use of a sled. Like it's. Nat and I tried, um, and we and we did have some help with helicopters when we were in Alaska, but it's uh, you know you maybe get one line, maybe two features a day when you're ski touring, and but when you're with a, when you're on a sled, you just have you can get further into the backcountry, and you have, I guess, more chances to get shots. So learning how to sled was. Uh, and or try, I'm still trying to learn how to sled. Um, was opened a lot of doors for me, and also enabled me to go out with film crews because most of the film crews, pretty much all the film crews here, are um, use sleds to access the terrain. So if you didn't have a sled, you can't go out with them. Um, so yeah, that definitely opened a lot of doors for me, and and also working with uh, a filmer named Jeff Thomas, who he was Jeff Thomas from Theory. For, Fit Theory 3 back in the day. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers those movies, but that was his production company when he was like 18. And then he worked for Poor Boys for a long time and, and then went out on his own and freelanced. And now he's the head filmer and co-producer of Blank Collectives. Yeah. And I worked with Jeff on some, a few little, like a few corporate things, um, yeah. you know, like kind of tourism pieces for Sun Valley and, and for some different brands. And after working with him, he sort of, began inviting me on to go out and film with the boys with blank and um yeah and now we're a pretty tight crew which is nice yeah well that's with um stan ray and alex godbo the sort of mm -hmm. owners with jeff of blank collective yeah it's, uh alexi godbu uh stan ray and jeff yeah, not my australian version <laughs> I, I feel like i say it wrong alexi godbo um yeah, they're the three owners of Black Collective and mm. they all work really hard. Um, like, it's really cool seeing them just grind away over the summer to, to get the film produced and, um, you know, all the contracts and sponsorship stuff sorted and the premiere tour and everything. They, yeah, they do it all themselves, which is cool. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, um, you know, it's been, a, a, as you said, a long evolution. You said earlier that, you know, you'd made that decision, you want to get in touring and about country and, Whistler was your, you know, your chosen destination. I, I imagine um, even how things have panned out, you probably weren't thinking like you'd end up, you know, when you first mo moved your way to Whistler, you wouldn't think you'd, uh, you'd be uh, buying a home in Pemberton and, you know, 
fully 100% relocating and now you've got this whole change in your, um, well, you know, not your life. Well, yeah, in your life and your scheme. Yeah, no, I definitely did not anticipate this. Um, I actually owned a house down in Janja near Tolkien yep. and my plan was that I was going to come over here for like two, maybe three years, um, fill my epic backcountry ski park and then boost back to Australia and kind of live down on the surf coast and surf every day and get a proper job. And so by the time I was like, by this time now, I'd be, yeah, I'd be a professional in some kind of office job and I'd be surfing every morning and surfing every evening and um, living the good life. Coaching at Team Bull of Riders. <laughs> Coaching on weekends at Team Bull of Riders. Yeah, maybe doing a bit of that. Um, and I guess life just doesn't always go as you plan, you know? And instead of surfing every day, I I make my way out to Vancouver Island now and then and get to surf in freezing cold water. <laughs> well, speaking of surfing, I just know, know looking at your um, social media, you're just down in Nicaragua surfing some fun waves down there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't surfed in warm water for about four years. Um, so that was absolutely amazing. I just... Yeah, it was it was such a good trip. Um, I, I don't get to surf very often and consistently, so I find that when I go out to to Fino or Yuki, um, my surfing's always like kind of back where it was when I was younger, and it's yeah. frustrating, you know. I'm like, oh, I used to be able to get up and surf better and turn and do this and do that, and um, and going on a three week trip, you kind of you you relearn all the skills that you've forgotten, and you and then you also progress. So that was really nice and. And obviously, you know, the food and the people and the warm water, everything was just on point. So I, yeah. I keep that feeling very refreshed and recharged. Yeah, well, that's been nice to travel because, you know, like I suppose for everyone, um, travel's been a hard thing to do over the last uh, two years since COVID raised its ugly head back in you know, early 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, with that, when was the last, you haven't been in Australia for a, a few years now. No, it's been, it would be two years on point now, actually. Um, yeah, I'm really missing home, to be honest. And I, I thought by this time, by this point in the year, uh, the borders would have opened. And I was actually thinking, instead of going to Nicaragua, I was going to come back to Australia and see yeah. my parents and see my friends. And, um, and that just was obviously not going to happen. But we've been watching watching the news every time a new announcement's made about borders opening, I get a message from my mum and she really wants me to come back over Christmas news because my little brother's actually having a baby, but I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen quite yet. So it might have to yeah. wait. Yeah. Well, they're talking, I mean, you know, they're talking about it here, like New South Wales opening, letting people fly in double vaccinated. If from, yeah, from November, like basically in a month you'll be able like, you know, Australia's theoretic well, yeah, it looks like Australia's be able to fly to Vancouver and head up the highway and be skiing Whistler this year. Hundred percent. But if you go back to Australia, you have to quarantine still for a week. Yeah, is- seven That's days hard. home. Yeah, you go home and annoy your mum for a week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so um, you know, okay. So the plan this winter. Okay, what is the plan? And um, and you know, like. You've been busy. You're filming again, but what 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 else are you doing? Like, how are you making your living? Um, I know you've got sponsorship. Are your endorsements still enough to cover your day to day living? I mean, if I was frugal, 
they probably would, but I'm not frugal. <laughs> I go on trips to Nicaragua. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and, I, and I have a sled and a dog that keeps eating strange things in the park and having to go to the vet. So um, <laughs> I'll get onto that later. But, uh, yeah. but so, yeah, my side hustle is I do marketing for a backcountry lodge. It's a ski touring backcountry lodge. Um, you helicopter in. It's called Whitecap Alpine. I'm going to give it a plug here. Yeah. You helicopter in and you stay there for three four, or four nights and you ski tour um, the beautiful South Tilcotton Mountains, which are surrounding Pemberton. Um, right. You stay in this beautiful log cabin and are guided by qualified mountain guides and then you fly out. And they, we also do hiking in the summer, which is um, really popular for, for all types of people. So that is my part-time job and I do marketing and I take care of the digital and the print advertising and photo shoots and all that kind of thing and it keeps me pretty busy. Yeah, no, that's good. It sort of marries with what you're doing quite nicely, you know, because um, it's uh, out, you know, well, it's in the mountains and it's um, involved with with skiing and hiking. So um, with Blank Collective this year, like in the uh, email train when we were talking, lining this up, you're saying you've got another project happening with them um, this upcoming winter? Yeah, yeah. I'll be filming with uh, the Blank Collective guys uh, this 21-22 winter. We don't have a solid plan as to what the film's going to be called, what the what the theme's going to be, but uh, there's some ideas being thrown around there. So it's kind of fun to, to be listening on the development stage and... Um, yeah, maybe we'll just be in British Columbia again. Uh, maybe we'll get to venture a little bit further. But, I mean, the skiing and the snow around here is so good that I'm completely happy to, to stay in, the, in this province. So we'll see what happens. Um, I don't think there's – we might go down to the US um, because the borders between Canada and US are open. But, um, yeah, exact trips we're not sure yet, but we'll probably start filming in December and, and go right through till April. Yeah. Well, how's it been over there? Like, obviously, you're well in touch with what's going on in Melbourne with family. It's been it's now the most locked down city in the world since this whole thing started. Um, yeah. From what's been happening over in Canada? I mean, I heard a lot, you know, outbreaks last year and resorts having to close early and yeah. things like that. But what's the process going into this winter and how's the summer been? Um, I would say, like, overall, things have been progressing fairly steadily I think the big difference between and this is British Columbia not the rest of Canada but and Australia is that we haven't been on a roller coaster ride um, you know we haven't been like oh you can do this oh no you can't do that you can do this oh no you can't do that it's kind of been very steadily opening up um, the only setback has been that they told us we were told that we didn't need masks in certain places and now masks are back in place, but that's fine. Um, but we do have vaccination cards. So for a lot of recreational activities um, that are indoors, you need to be vaccinated and show your, um, show your ID or your vaccination passport. And there yeah. are a lot of people that are disgruntled about that, but I think it's just a way that things can start to open up and businesses can start to, um, make money without putting uh, society at risk. So that's that's something that's coming to place in terms of the ski resort. Uh, I don't think you have to be vaccinated. 
Um, but it's going to be open and from what I've seen through emails, it's kind of international visitors, welcome, business as usual kind of thing. Um, yeah. So that's really exciting. And then um, I actually went to a, I went to a theatre a few nights ago and saw um, a mountain film festival, a short, short films from the Vancouver International Mountain Film Festival. So that's the first time I've been in a theatre in a while and it, I felt quite comfortable, to be honest. Yeah, well, I mean, it'd be nice to just get some semblance of normality. Mm. Yeah. I think uh, sounds like um, Canada and Australia are following a similar suit, you know, with vaccination cards. And initially, I think um, here it looks like, like, say, New South Wales, for example, over the next, you know, they've got a step by step. You know, they love calling it the roadmap to freedom as politicians break out some sort of absurd cliche, but um, that's what it is. And sort of um, unvaccinated people sort of, going to be sort of restricted until the 1st of December, then it's sort of the, they, they're presuming there'll be enough vaccinated people to let, um, so everyone can sort of move around and go to, you know, restaurants and theatres and dinner and bars and what have you. Um, yep. But why international travel, definitely only um, mm. those who are vaccinated. And I know, which is interesting, you know, because I know a lot of the snow travel uh, companies in Australia are sort of, you know, super keen to sort of gear up again after not having any business for two years. Yeah. Um, it can be interesting to see how that all pans out because there's a definitely a libertarian attitude where, well, you can't tell me what to do, but kind of you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. And, like, with with forecasting what's going to happen, I've just kind of, like, ditched that. I, I just, I haven't, in terms of the season or the year ahead, I, just, I think a good thing is to not plan until last minute <laughs> for me anyway that's for me but um yeah you just you just never know I, I I've been even from afar I've been frustrated watching how things have been happening in Australia and, and really feeling for for people that are in lockdown I mean it's like it's really depressing and and for some people more than others and I I just I think it's like can be harmful in certain ways so I I really hope things open up and people can start living like a a more normal life as soon as possible. Yeah, well, you think, yeah, if you're a skier in um, Melbourne, it's been a couple of tough winter as far as getting a few turns. You know, yeah. Two years in a row, I mean, I think they had a total of 15 days access or something to the mountains this year. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, and which is... Have you, heard of, have you heard of this idea of travel revenge? Travel revenge? Yeah, which is like people people like once things that start opening up people are just going to go crazy with travel like getting revenge on the travel that they weren't allowed to have and so i've heard that forecast in people saying that once once the gates open people are just going to be like see ya i'm on holiday <laughs> I, I reckon no doubt i mean it kind of happened last year uh last summer yeah like here in the like in uh, Threadbow and Ginnabine, it's just bang it was the busiest summer ever and mm. i heard yeah towns like bright um, you know, the Victorian high country was just full on because people just, you'd imagine, the first, if you live in Melbourne, the first thing you, you'd want to do is see the back end of Melbourne as you're driving out, you know. Um, pretty, could be pretty crowded down the surf and Mornington Peninsula and Phillip Island this year and the surf coast, but I reckon they'll be jumping on, you know, I'm pretty sure international travel will be happening. As you, like you said, you know, it's just so nice to go down to Nicaragua and experience different culture, different language, different food again. I think people... Yeah, Australians in particular, well, you know, they travel and they're going to be doing it again. Yeah, and another thing, like, 
this is getting like away from skiing and a little more like talking about like social issues and political issues. But one thing that I sort of forgot about traveling, and I I felt kind of bad because I didn't travel for so long that I was like, I don't need to travel anymore. It's bad for the environment. And then when I went down there, like I was staying at a surf camp and so many different, I was there for three weeks and so many different people came in and out of the surf camp um, with different backgrounds and different, different life experiences and, and lots of different opinions and obviously like COVID and um, what was going on in the world politically was on the tip of everyone's tongues and just having that opportunity to get out of your echo chamber and like and learn and like listen to other people's opinions and views on the world I found so refreshing and um, valuable and enriching because I think when you're especially during COVID we've been surrounded by like very close friends and families and, and their opinions and our opinions. And like, you need to hear other people's opinions and other people's views to like understand where people are coming from. And I, I found one of the, that aspect of, of traveling to Nicaragua and it could be traveling anywhere, like really, really important, something that I've been missing for the last couple of years. Yeah. Well, you know, as you know, travel sort of opens your mind, opens your eyes and, um, you mentioned before, and I remember when you, um, a social media post you put up when you were in Nicaragua, and you, you talked about the effect of flying on the environment. And I know you're heavily involved with uh, POW in Canada um, you know, as an ambassador. And you, you talked about like feeling guilty, um, your carbon footprint as a, you know, as a ski, as, well, just traveling. And mm-hmm. as a professional skier, I mean, it's inevitable, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, the odd flight sleds you know helicopters you try and sort of minimize all that but um what are your thoughts on that you know like um how do you sort of placate your sort of environmental self by um offsetting your carbon footprint and do you feel guilty if you're chucking your skis on the bow of an airplane 100 percent. i feel guilty all the time and like sometimes and i and i don't justify it to myself like I don't say oh no it's okay because of this or, or it's okay because of that I yeah. look at it and go like yeah I'm I'm not doing the wrong thing but I'm contributing you know this is like I could do better and I, I always have that thought that I could do better but I think especially recently I you know I've, and I've always tried to you know eat less meat and carpool and all those little you know recycle all those tiny little things but uh, I think recently, especially since buying a sled and, um, you know, and, and I jump in a helicopter sometimes, like sometimes I'll have a film day out of a helicopter and that's crazy carbon footprint. Um, yeah. And I I think I placate myself, like you were saying, by considering what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and if it's necessary. So, for yeah. example, my mum trying to get me to come back to Australia this um, this December, I would really, really like to go, but it's going to be a 10 day trip because of my skiing obligation. So I'm like, yeah. is it worth going back to Australia to visit my family for 10 days and jumping on a plane and coming back when I'm going to be in quarantine? You know, like, is it yeah. worth it? Or should I just wait and do a proper like two months in Australia and make this like a really valuable and um, enriching and worthwhile trip? And I think back like back 10 years ago if someone was like oh come down to Mexico for 10 days or come over here for five days I'd jump on a plane whenever I got the opportunity um, yeah. and I'd drive somewhere new whenever I got the opportunity and I think now 
for travel and for skiing, it's it's really considering like, do I need to do it? Is it necessary? Um, can I go and get this experience somewhere closer kind of thing? Um, or or is it going to be really enriching? And am I going to spend like a lot of time down there and, and make this um, trip worthwhile? So I think that's more of what I'm doing. And then, and then also just learning a lot and understanding a lot and being more in touch with um, what's going on politically and who you're voting in or not voting in. And, and that I think also um, helps me kind of come to terms with, with how much we're all contributing, you know? Yeah. Have you um, always had a sort of um, environmental sort of considerations and have you ever been, like, is the, your awareness of what's going on politically and as far as the climate goes, is that a, something that's sort of come to you over the last five years when you're sort of being settled and spending more time in the backcountry? No, I think I, I think I probably started at university. Um, okay. Yeah. Like, as a yeah I think just like learning more about the world around you and um and discussing it with with others that you're learning with and I did an arts commerce degree and in a lot of the liberal arts subjects you'll sort of you you dive into the environment and then also like in commerce that that was starting to come up you know in the kind of think when I went to like the late 2000s um it really started like the environment like the global warming thing really started raising its head and yeah. Uh, but I was, I was still, I was traveling so much as a competitive skier. I think I was too scared and too guilty to actually say anything. Cause I was like, I'm such a hypocrite. I'm like, I, you know, I'm jumping on flights left, right and center, like to go to training camps and to fly to Europe for five days and to fly, fly to Japan for 10 days. And, um, I was jet setting for sure. And I just didn't want to say anything cause I, I was worried that people would, um, point fingers at me and just, and say I was, you know, a hypocrite pretty much and yeah. um yeah so so I've had it probably since since the start of uni and then um I guess just have become more confident in myself and um and what I believe in and and not worrying so much about what other people think that I've become more outspoken about it yeah yeah so um well and I think um like I was talking to Jeremy Jones the other day in an interview we did and um like he was saying like it's just he became more and more of aware, like he, you know, founding power was a result of what he was seeing happening in the mountains. Um, I know you've only been living up there for about seven years, but talking to, you know, your friends, long-term, you know, born and bred locals, what, what are their thoughts on what's happening up in BC as far as global warming and receding um, glaciers, et cetera, is going on? Well, I mean, I guess you can, I actually have noticed it a lot only being here for seven years because the first year I lived here, I, which would have been summer of 2015, I coached up at Momentum um, yeah. Black Home on the glacier. And seeing the glacier then compared to what it looks like now is, which is seven years, it's not a long amount of time, is like terrifying. It's, it's probably shrunk by, it's probably half of what it was. Wow. It's Really, I don't even. They had to take the T bar out because the ice that held the T bar poles in is too shallow. Oh wow, wow! Well, you had forty degree days there. Like, yeah, you know, it's like, it's we, summer Melbourne heatwave. So I had to evacuate my house in Pel- Pemberton um, because the runoff from the mountains was so strong over that days so that they were worried that the whole town would be flooded. No way! From meltdown. It was, it was forty. 
it was 43 degrees and 44 degrees and we had to evacuate. And so I had to, I've got a garage and I had to move all the stuff in my garage upstairs. I had to sandbag my whole house or my town. Yeah. And my dog and myself had to go to a friend's house in Whistler because of, it was, it was an evacuation alert. It was an evacuation order. And there were police yeah. coming around and knocking on our doors telling us we had to leave because I was so worried about um, devastating floods from mountain melt or snow that's, melt. That's amazing. I thought you were going to say 43 degrees and there was, you know, forest wildfires. We had to get evacuated because of fires, but it's a, you know, aggressive snow melt. That's just so too that, weird. Yeah, that kind of thing is really crazy. And then even doing hikes up to, like, hikes in the summer up to glaciers and then having seen photos of what they looked like 10 years before and, and seeing that now. And I guess one other example is on my birthday this year, I did a, like a small map, well, not small, but I did a mountaineering objective for my partner who's a guide. And yeah. I was so scared. There was rock fall all day and all night because of the melt. And I was so scared of the crevasses. But apparently the area that we were was looking really rough. Yeah. Like according to my partner. And usually yeah. there isn't rock fall all through the night, but the temperatures were so warm and the glaciers were so crevassed and receded that we were both, we, we changed our objective and we, I left there going, I don't ever want to do anything like that again. It was yeah, wow. Terrifying. There were just rocks falling down all around us. Like, yeah, yeah just it's dangerous. Like, all the rocks. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's, it's like frightening. It's just sort of, I don't know, just so many different angles how it's affecting uh, the environment, the world. It's just quite bizarre the more you think about it. But, and, yeah, um, it is interesting being in the mountains and seeing such quick change that every, that's being talked about, you know, on TV and on, on the internet and on podcasts. It's, you see it firsthand, like, a lot up here. I know. It's just uh, can get quite depressing when you think about it. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Let's swing back to something we all feel good about, which is um, skiing. Um, but like your your move into the backcountry and big mountains, um, how has your approach changed? You know, like there's obviously danger out there. You know, like in the backcountry, you're talking about before about your knowledge of avalanches and how more of a, a stable snowpack in um, British Columbia. But when you're out there about to ski a, a big line, how are you managing your approach to that? And as opposed to just, you know, free skiing around bull running Mount Buller. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think being in the same spot and, and skiing locally, um, a lot of the big, all the big lines that we skied actually are around Pemberton and Whistler. And so um, being locally and watching the snowpack throughout winter, I think, is really important. Um, I actually had the opportunity to go up to Alaska and I didn't feel comfortable about it because I didn't know who my our guide was going to be. And right. going up there and not knowing in depth what had been happening throughout the season and not knowing that our guide had been there all season worried me. And so I actually decided to stay here in Pemberton and, and shoot the last few days of the season here. Um, yeah, right. Because a lot of my, like, just having watched how the snow forms and... Um, and the different layers and and how they're metamorphosizing gives you that understanding and a little bit more confidence about what you're skiing um, and that you're making the right decision. And also having contacts that are people that are guides and heli pilots and 
and all that kind of thing and, and texting and asking and checking in with people to see the different conditions of the different areas. Um, having that control just adds like a little bit more confidence and reassurance um, yeah. because the more you know, the better, right? You're never going to know for sure and you're never going to know 100%. But um, yeah. I think for me, just having an understanding and a knowledge base is I think how I mitigate the risk, at least in my head. <laughs> <laughs> And like, how do you feel when you're standing at the top of a, a steep line? You're excited. You're intimidated. You're sort of relaxed. Um, a bit of everything. Probably yeah. not relaxed. I wish I could be more relaxed. Often it, often it depends how well I was able to scope the line. So if I was able to have a good look at the line and I can flip it around in my head, and I really know where I'm going, then I feel better at the top. But there's some instances where you kind of don't get the best look and you can't really you can't really visualize it and you kind of are just going well I'm just got to be strong and hope for the best that's when I feel that's when I start to feel nervous and a bit anxious so I, I can't say that I feel the same at the top of every line but I know that the lines that I ski the best are the ones that I've been able to visualize in my head and the ones that I have an understanding of exactly where I need to go yeah and and then of course then there's just the the fun powder days, you know. So um oh, yeah. <laughs> that's uh that's more sort of like January when just end of if you're lucky in December as well, but you know, the fun kind of ski touring, no no cameras, or even if there is a camera, you're just sort of like bopping around in low angle pillowy pow and yeah. So much fun. So when's your favourite time for, for skiing in BC? Oh, it's hard. It depends. <laughs> it always depends. Um, I feel like end of January, February is often really good. Uh, you know, there's a base. Um, the pillow stacks have built up. Um, you can usually find good snow in sheltered areas. Yeah. Um, I really love that for tree skiing and pillow skiing. But then yeah. for the big lines, it's like late. It's late March is is when it starts going off. Um, yeah, things are filled in, the weather's better, the days are longer, you can get out further into the backcountry and and usually the snow's uh, more solidified and, and bonded, you would hope or you hope for. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I guess, what do they call it, big game hunting is sort of end of, <laughs> end of March and April. Um, so it's just, I, like, I love them both, it's just a different style of skiing. Yeah. Well, it's funny, I was, just, I was just looking at the forecast for Whistler then, you guys have got some snow coming to on the mountain watch forecast, it's like top of the table at the moment. Um, oh. So it looks like early snow. So you excited for the winter? Really excited for the winter. Um, yeah, I, I'm feeling ready. I'm, we've got a couple months to go uh, before, it all, before it all gets going. But, I mean, Mount Curry, which is like the, the huge iconic mountain just outside of Pemberton, is I have a view right outside my house and the snow... The, the top of the peaks are already capped with snow and it's filling in. So it's a good indicator every morning and a good reminder that, like, winter is coming. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's always exciting when those early snowfalls come through and, you, you know, and the, the leaves start changing colour and the, the season's just not around around the corner. So, um, you know, you've been skiing full-time for a long time now, Anna. Um, it's still, how's it feel? You're still obviously still excited for winter. still something you love to do. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that I've just kept learning. Um, I think 
if I was still competing, I probably wouldn't still love be loving it, but I'm, I'm always mentally challenged. And just like the, the skills that I'm learning every single season and, and reading terrain, like when I'm out there with the guys that I'm filming with, I still feel like the rookie. Um, they're able to, to look at terrain and size up terrain and pick lines and find film angles so much quicker than I can. It takes me like 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, um, I'm skiing that. I'm skiing that. I'm going here. That's a bad landing. That's a good cliff. I'm like, wow, yeah. I'm such a rookie. So I think um, having that level to strive towards is just keeping me really engaged and, um, and loving what I'm doing. Yeah, and um, what about longevity in the future? I mean, obviously, you're just going to keep skiing. Um, but how long do you see yourself, you know, as, as the main focus of your life? You know, you said you work part-time in marketing. When's it going to switch around and the skiing becomes part-time, if ever? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I've never known the answer to that question. I mean, if you asked me when I was 20, I would have told you 25. And when I was 25, I thought it was 30. And You know, like I... I, I just don't know. I'm not a good five-year planner. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm more of a one-year planner. So, yeah. um, and this one-year plan goes for the next season. Um, and, yeah, next season and into spring. And then and then we'll, we'll reassess and see how I'm feeling. Yeah. I mean, it can go on forever, you know. You never know. And which brings me back to, you mentioned how your mum wants to come back. How's it been sort of, you know, like an intercontinental, like I, you know, having kids who ski, I often think, well, it's inevitable, not inevitable, it's very yeah. likely they could end up in a different hemisphere, which, you know, as a dad is a bit of a worry. But, you know, yeah. I know your, your parents would love to see you more. How do you, um, reflecting on that, you know, it's um, a big change. Obviously, when you were 20, you never thought you'd live anywhere else, I suppose, permanently. Well, I'm, I'm trying to convince my mom to move here when she retires. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, she loves it. She actually, she doesn't, she likes Revelstoke more when that lives. But um, we've been like, my stepdad's retired and my mom, she'll probably be working full time for another three or four years. But we're yeah. putting a bug in her ear and um, she's told me she's not moving here until one of us has a baby. So that's really pretty. <laughs> <laughs> and I I have a dog. I'm like, it's your fur, it's your fur baby grandchild, and she's not taking that yet. So, no. um, yeah, who knows? But it is, it is really hard. And like, thank God for Zoom and Skype and FaceTime because we we are able to connect a lot. Whenever I'm in the car, I'm kind of just have Mum on auto dial, and I'll just put my headphones in and dial her up and have a good old chat. She's often walking to work or in the office, and 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 we just talk about talk about everyday things. So. But I know she's really she's really missing us, um, and and I miss her a lot. And she actually has has booked a ticket to come over and visit us um, at the end of April next year. So well, that's, that's good. I mean, and then just um, you know, like as a you know a female in the ski industry, it's always you know snow industry. It's always a a tough one to make a career out of it. Like um, if you were talking to you know as an Australian skier, Australian female skier, if you were talking to Someone here, like now, who wanted to follow those dreams, what would you what would you say to them? Ooh. Don't do it. <laughs> no, I don't know. For sure, I would say, like, you've got to try it. You've got to, I would say, do it and give it a shot because regret is the worst, the worst feeling, you know? Like, and I think that's what's, I never knew for sure that I could do it. I just thought if I don't give it a try, 
I'm going to kick myself, you know. And and that was the same with with getting into filming. I didn't know that I was going to be able to, especially after the first two years here when I really wasn't making much leeway in like filming with anyone. I was just kind of putzing around, just trying to yeah. figure it out. But I was like, if I don't give this another year and like put in another year of effort, like I'm never going to know. I can't just go back to Australia with my tail. But I've got to like, I've got to keep trying. And so I would say, I would say to any young, especially female skiers or snowboarders, like, as long as you, if you're putting, if you know, like deep down in your gut that you're putting in as much effort as you can, you just got to like give yourself enough time and chances to to give it a real go. Otherwise, you're going to regret it. And and that's like, and there's sacrifices. There's so many social sacrifices, like not going to that party and and missing missing people's weddings and you know all that going home early. Like I did a lot of. I'm the best Houdini you'll ever meet. <laughs> just looking at the party, but like it's it's so worth it in the end. And so, yeah. Yeah. The worst thing that can happen is you'll go back to the life that you were living before. You know. Yeah. Well, looking back now, you know, like you're now in your early 30s. You know, long time since a 15 year old mogul skier. Um, must be pretty good looking back. It's a like you know, it's an exciting life as opposed to as you said, you could have been catching the tram to a job in Melbourne every. Uh, every Monday to Friday. Yeah, which isn't a bad life. It wouldn't have been a bad life to go back to, you know. Like Melbourne's yeah. such a bad city and there's so many like cool and engaging jobs there. But, um, yeah, it has, I think, like the life experience I've had from trying <laughs> to be a skier has, has, like I wouldn't have had that if I'd stayed in Australia. Like I've met so many amazing people. I've made so many stupid mistakes and I've, like, I've learnt a lot. So, um, you know, gotten through injuries gotten stranded all that kind of stuff so um even the life experience if you don't make it's worth worth giving it a try yeah well i think that's a nice way to wrap up this uh interview anna um really appreciate you you know taking the time out to talk to us here at chill fact and also all your involvement in the magazine over the years you've been a regular contributor as well as um featuring in the mag so um thanks heaps and all the best for what i hope will be an awesome winter for you but reggae, I haven't been on the cover yet. <laughs> no, you haven't been on the cover. Well, you, you you get the shot. I'll put you on the cover. Okay, okay. That's going to be one of my goals this year, get on the Chill Factor front cover. <laughs> yeah. I, I nearly put Nat on I could have put Nat on the cover one year, but the photo arrived. Um, it was from Europe, and we'd already sent the cover away. It was oh, I just squeezed the story in, yeah. You know that? Yeah. So Lorraine Huber's been on the cover. Um, who else? Andrea? Yep. Yep. Had a few, so I think it's your turn. Come on. Well, it's Nat and my little race, but she's a way better photo skier than I am, so she'll probably get get in the front of the line. <laughs> well, we'll see. Harrow, Harrow can be the judge of that. He's a photo editor, so we'll see what he thinks of it. Harrow will be getting a box of chocolates soon. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right, then. Take, take care. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Reggae. Always a pleasure. Well, that wraps up another Chill Factor podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please rate, review it, and share it with friends. And we'll be back with another episode in a few weeks. Until then, get out and live and love Australian skiing. And don't forget, you can find us at chillfactor.com. Who's ready to go? Nobody knows snow like reggae, no snow. He's ready to blow like an atomic reactor. This is the show.